everyone and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. Uh, I'm here with uh, Nick Savidis. Is that how you say it? Savidis. Savidis, sorry. Savidis is the anglicized version. The real version is Savaitis. Savaitis. That's much better. That's the way the Greeks actually say it. Anglicized version is Savidis. Oh, I tried the Greek version. I answered to both. Yeah, here with Nick Savaitis. And my real name's not Nick. It's Nico. Nico. <laughs> but let's yeah. start again. I'm no, here no, with Nico it. Savides. <laughs> that's good. And uh, kind of uh, the, the founder of the founder and director of Etico Fashion. Yep. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. Yeah. 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 To share our story. Yeah. Sure. And, and I, I suppose kind of we go back a while now. Like I, I suppose our paths first intersected maybe. 2014, 2015? Yeah, which is when I... Actually, no, it was, it was actually a lot longer than that. I was actually thinking about that. I think it was more than 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, it would have been over 2013. Yeah. yeah. So, let me just... That. <coughs> yeah, so... Yeah, almost 10 years ago. And so, so, yeah, I've been running the business for a few years before mm. we, we met. But it was still early days. Um, I'm pretty sure it was actually earlier than 2013 because uh, mm. I remember the business really changed after about 2013. Really, kind of. You know, when I first met you and mm. Leon, it was pretty early days. Yes, yeah. It was before that momentum really kind of built up. Yep. Mm. But yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, congratulations on the work that you've been doing, not oh, just with you. this yeah. podcast, but also your events, which I used to attend. Yeah. <laughs> Are they still going? Yeah. yeah. I mean, not not as regularly as before, but um, but yeah, we still we still do them. Okay, I better keep an eye on so I start turning up again. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so maybe let, let's go back, Nick. Maybe let's go back to your origin story. Like, where were you born? Where you where were you brought up? Well, I wasn't born too far from here, just down the road in Carlton. Mm. And mm. and the kind of early years, I was raised, as I mentioned to you before, I was mm. raised just around the corner in, in Clifton Hill and mm-hmm. Northcote and Thornbury. I mean, uh, my family were kind of, you know, my parents migrated to Australia in the 1950s mm. and they were kind of working class families who kind of mm. struggled financially for many years. And mm-hmm. yeah, there was a lot of share, you know, house sharing with other families. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's a story not just limited to our family, but there's a lot of migrant families have the same story. I mean, when you come out to Australia, you don't have much money, mm. you have kids, and so what you do is you share houses with other families. And we were, at once, I remember my parents owned a house in Northcote at one stage, and mm. it was a three-bedroom house with three families living in a three-bedroom house. Wow. Yeah. No <laughs> fucking idea how we, they, my parents coped or how we kind of coped. Mm. But it wasn't unusual because most of the other houses in our street had the same kind of situation hmm. so yeah if you don't know any better yeah that's the way it is yeah. so was, was it your parents that immigrated from yeah my dad came out here when the when he was about 19 years of age and mm-hmm. i find it kind of amazing that you would go to the, you know the other side of the world where you couldn't speak the local language and mm. you know, start again and uh, you know leaving your family behind but you know they Th- things were pretty t- my family are Greek origin if you haven't worked out by my <laughs> <Yeah>. surname <laughs> and my face uh, mm. um, but uh, yeah his family was struggling and one way you know, they decided to migrate to make a better mm. go of, them, of their lives and you know, my mother followed soon after she was 18 mm. when she came out to Australia and my parents got married and dad ended up uh, when his first job was working on the uh, the Garn track between uh, mm. Port Augusta and Alice Springs. He was working on that railway line. Wow. And, uh, Around what year was this? Nineteen fifty-three, fifty-four. Yeah. And, uh, and then yeah, he came back to Melbourne and uh, started working in various jobs. I think probably most of his working life was so when he was young was working at General Motors mm-hmm. and you know, on the factory line. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, mother, mum, um, you know, she she wasn't really trained in anything, but she learned to sew clothing. So mm-hmm. she worked in the fashion industry when I was kind of growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes working in factories like the ones that were just around the corner in Clifton Hill. You know, mm-hmm. I mentioned to you Genevieve, yep. which uh, I think they used to make swimwear and kind of hosiery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also worked uh, from home in between raising four kids. Mm. Um, I remember in our lounge room in uh, Northcote, we used to have a... 
a black and white TV. Um, mm. And then next to the black and white TV, there was a Singer sewing machine. Mm-hmm. That my, it was an ancient Singer sewing machine that my father actually put on a, attached an electric motor and actually made it an electric sewing machine. Mm. And then my mum would spend time in between raising four kids, sewing garments for big and small fashion brands. Mm. And uh, But once again, you know, it, I didn't think it was anything unusual because nearly all the migrant families in our street... And the, the mothers were doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's how it was, yeah. So mm. each week a, a car would, a van would turn up. A gra- I remember it was a grey van and uh, there would be a big bag of fabric and mum mm-hmm. would bring it into the lounge room and just dump it there and mm-hmm. and then just spend the week sewing, you know, sewing garments, pieces together and making garments that would ended up being sold in shops around Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, wow. But that's how the fashion industry was in Australia during the 60s. It was yeah. actually, you know, migrant women uh, working so, from so, home and uh, yeah. Yeah, and also working in factories around here. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was almost like the, the, these women were worked by themselves or, or were contracted by the big... Yeah, they were home workers. I mean, that's what they call them these days. I mean, there are still home workers doing this from home these days, I mean, mm-hmm. except they're not Greek or Italians. They're kind of Vietnamese, mm-hmm. Cambodian women. Mm-hmm. Um, though it's a bit more regulated now. I mean, mm. yeah. But yeah, it's it's not an uncommon thing, and but it used to be a lot more common. Yeah, during the fifties and sixties and early seventies as well, yeah. until everything started moving offshore. Mm. And so, um, and I think I'm pretty sure this building that you're located in actually was there was uh, quality tops used to be downstairs. Okay, it was a clothing <laughs> manufacturing mm. business was directly below where we are. Yeah, yeah. And could, could you give us a sense of what, what was it like growing up? You know, in a working class family. Yeah, we. In the 50s I remember. And 60s, we, yeah. I mean, on reflection, we we struggled financially. I remember my parents lost their first house because I know they couldn't meet their repayments, mm. and uh, so yeah, we were moving all the time. Um, mm. You know, from one household to I mean, sharing from one share house to another. I mean, mm-hmm. it must have been a difficult time for my parents to move young kids around all the time. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we didn't know any other better. So yeah, mm. um, but no, my parents, you know, they they were decent, hardworking kind of people who kind of cared for their kids and had a good network with friends, and mm-hmm. they were pretty social. No, my, my parents were very social, and um, yeah, we were mixing you know, with lots of other families. It was mm-hmm. it was a pretty the tight the Greek community in Melbourne during the sixties and seventies was a pretty not tight knit one. Mm-hmm. I think it is still to a degree now, but not as much as it used to be when we were kind of growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, um, occasionally I used to go with my parents to their workplaces, and mm. I remember visiting my mum. When, well, we used to live just around the corner from where my mum worked, and mm-hmm. used to see this kind of whole huge area of women behind sewing machines, just sewing, 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 and mm-hmm. you know, my mum would introduce me to some of the work, women she worked with, and and then occasionally I. would was able to go with my father to Port Melbourne down to Salmon Salmon Road, I think it was called, mm. where General Motors used to be, and you know, see some of the work that the industrial kind of set yeah. of General Motors was. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, pr- from pretty early age, I th- had no fair idea what work was. But as far as I was aware, that's what work was. I mean, I had no idea that there were other mm. career opportunities. Yep. I think my <laughs> mother's biggest uh, hope for us was to become bank tellers because she <laughs> thought that was, as far as careers were, that was being the a bank teller, yeah. was, you, know, you were kind of wore a clean suit and you handled money and yeah. Yeah, kind of you were respected. Uh, hmm. She had no idea what the wider world had to offer. Hmm. And then what was schooling like in, in that in that environment? Did you go to many schools or was it? Yeah, we moved around. I mean, we moved, I mean, primary school, I hmm. yeah, started off at Gold Street, which is just around the corner in Clifton Hill, and then we mm-hmm. moved to um, Thornbury to Whale Street Primary School, and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, overall, it was a general a positive experience. But you know, on reflection, you know, I, I there was also some ra- not racism, but discrimination against mm-hmm. uh, kids whose families come from you know non-Anglo kind of backgrounds, and mm-hmm. you know, I kind of remember thinking it sucked a few times, mm-hmm. and um, being, you know, I remember teachers. Say picking on us, but uh, yeah, I don't think they really appreciated the challenges we had mm-hmm. coming from a bi- bicultural environment because sure. you know, we had pressures of what was expected of us as a kind of a, as kids of Greek families, but, mm. and then we're also trying to mix in with 
the, the non-Greek, the, yeah, you know, the, the Anglos and the Anglos, else, yeah. yeah. And I think the teachers in those days really appreciated the challenges, mm. um, not in primary school and even in high school. So I started off going to high school at Northcote Boys High School, mm-hmm. which during the se- early 70s was an incredibly rough school. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether you, you ever heard of any of this kind of stuff, okay? No. It was a hotbed for um, activism amongst the teachers, you know, the teachers were at the time when I first started, they were on strike all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredibly aggressive school, I mean, maybe because it was a boys' school. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, there was, you know, there was people, kids, young kids were being picked on. I remember being spat on mm-hmm. um, because I was a wog. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you lived in, you know, you lived in fear. I mean, there was, it was fearful going to school sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, From North the other kids or the, or yeah, the, the no, the yeah. other kids are the older kids. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were lots of bullies mm-hmm. around there, and you know, being a, a small kind of wog kid. <laughs> didn't make it easy. Mm. Um, but now Northcote's considered a prestigious kind of school. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you. But, you know, we, you know, there were some teachers there who were very socially uh, active and mm-hmm. very kind of left-wing leaning and, you know, I suppose that was a reflection. But um, this is the first two years of high school and the kind of the second year my family, my dad, mum, sick of working in factories, not seeing their kids. Mm-hmm. Um ended up moving us to the Riverland in South Australia. Oh, wow. And you can ask, did your parents speak English or were they... Uh, dad spoke some English. My mum yeah. just had a spattering of English, but mm-hmm. um, it was my dad who spoke. But, uh, so you spoke Greek at home? Yeah, we always spoke Greek. Actually, with my dad, I did speak English. Mm. But with mum, it was actually Greek all mm. the time. Mm-hmm. But we moved to the Riverland because... Uh, yeah, they thought it was an opportunity to get out of the rat race. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a very tight-knit Greek community up in the Riverland in South Australia. I'm not sure whether you know where the Riverland is. No, it's, I don't. No. It's uh, kind of further west of uh, um, Mildura, so across the border in South Australia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, places called Berry, Barma, Remark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a fruit-growing area. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. and we went and visited some family friends there, and they convinced us that was the, the place to be. And so we, you know, my parents bought a property up there and uh, mm. sold their house down in Melbourne. And, um, yeah, it was kind of gave you a different outlook. I mean, mm. I, you know, I was growing up in the inner suburbs of Melbourne and then mm. moved to the, the Riverland to see farming life and kind of a reflection. I mean, when I was growing up, I saw how hard it was for working class families mm-hmm. to survive. Mm. And then when I <laughs> we went to the Riverland, I kind of realised that you know, farm life isn't that easy. Yeah, exactly. yeah. This is another struggle, and yeah, you know, mm. I could see how you know workers in factories are being kind of, I say, exploited. But you know, mm. farmers in Australia are also you could you could see they're being exploited as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, were they also immigrants, or were they mainly native-born? The original farmers in that area were returned soldiers from the. Uh, so when people came back from World War Two, mm-hmm. they were given these plots of land in and irrigation was introduced into that area. Yep. So when those guys were retiring or, mm. or passing away, they sold their properties to mm. you know, migrant families who were moving up into that area. So mm. lots of Greeks and Italians and Yugoslavs and Lebanese in that area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I still keep contact with people, friend, you know, friends who are in that area. And wow. now what's happened is that there's a large... Sikh community up there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, I think it's a, it's pretty common for migrants to kind mm. of follow one after the other. Yeah. And so while this time, you know, while, you know, you're moving around and you're going to different schools and so on, was there any interest in what was happening in school in terms of academics? Or I was useless academically. I was mm. too <laughs> focused on girls in sport. Yeah, <laughs> and, and cars mm. to worry about academia. But I mean, one thing I did enjoy doing was reading. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, as far as I mean, I, I saw your questions. I kind of made me reflect. So I thought, okay, what are the books? And I remember being pretty impacted by uh, the Grapes of Wrath, you know, the yeah. John Steinbeck book. Yep. Um, maybe because mm-hmm. I could relate to it, because you know we were living on a farm and yeah. things were pretty. Tough, and the immigrant so, so. experience and yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, then I also kind of remember books like Black Like Me. I'm mm-hmm. not sure whether you heard of that book. It's a guy. I think it was a guy called John Griffin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And talked about for, uh, and 
not sure whether someone would be able to write a book like that, but it was about some white fellow whose skin started going dark mm. and then talking about his experiences of, you know, of how his, he was treated. Yeah. You know, that. Yeah. I thought that kind of resonated with me. I'm not sure because I always, I suppose I've always had to think for the underdog and mm-hmm. uh, maybe because growing up, you know, I thought we were the underdogs and yeah. I suppose, <laughs> and that's the reason why I kind of support St Kilda. Yeah. <laughs> St Kilda, but uh, no, I could, man. I couldn't work out why people would treat someone differently because of the colour of their skin or their mm-hmm. ethnic, ethnic background. Mm-hmm. My mind, you, I realised quite an early age that uh, racism wasn't restricted to one particular oh, ethnic yeah, group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, growing up, I thought some of the most racist people I ever met were Greeks. Mm-hmm. And, and this is despite the fact that they were copying crap when they were in Australia, mm. uh, when they moved here. But they were quite racist towards other ethnic groups. Mm. And... Uh, Later on in life, I actually spent a lot of time living on remote Indigenous communities and mm-hmm. it always struck me how racist some Indigenous people were mm-hmm. towards other Aboriginals, other mm-hmm. Indigenous people and to other ethnic groups. So, mm. so yeah. Yeah, it's a common thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. yeah, I, I found that pretty interesting. But as far as school is concerned, yeah, I wasn't very academically mm-hmm. minded. I, mean, I just kind of, I was lucky to scrape through it. Mm-hmm. But um, it wasn't until I, actually after I, I was, I was going to fail year 12 and, I, and I, for some reason I was able to convince my father let me move back to Melbourne mm-hmm. and um, go to uh, back to Northcote High School and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and see if I could actually complete year 12 there and mm. um, yeah I did that and luckily I actually met I had some teachers oh, a couple of teachers who showed some interest mm-hmm. in me and uh, they kind of supported me and kind of encouraged me to mm-hmm. with my reading and kind of Helped me with the areas that I was weak at, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so yeah. So there's some good teachers. Mm-hmm. There's some lousy teachers at that school, but there's some really good ones as well, and they yep. helped me kind of go along as well. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get through year twelve and ended up uh, taking a year off and travelling around Europe. And I was just after high school, but mm-hmm. then we came back. I went to La Trobe University. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing it. I mean, I started doing a humanities. Arts kind of degree there because mm. I really didn't know what I was okay, wanting to yeah. do, so I did, did politics for a year. But I spent the first year and a half just socializing. I mean, mm. I can't <laughs> recall doing much. I mean, I had a few good mates, and yeah. yeah. And, I, and this is in the day and age where there was no hex. Yeah, <laughs> I, f- I feel so bad for kids these days, but uh, so you mean it was all free? It was all free, yeah. And so, mm. you know, I had a part time job and mm-hmm. I was able to live quite comfortably just working. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. I wasn't living you know, luxuriously. I mean, I was actually working mm. as a, a cleaner at uh, at Myers, mm. <laughs> and uh, in the city, in the city, and yeah. uh, in in the food section. Mm-hmm. So I was actually eating quite well. But I was actually <laughs> able to help myself to some really high quality. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure I was the only student at La Trobe University mm. who would regularly eat caviar <laughs> and not not just cheap caviar. The good stuff. The yeah. good stuff. I was actually yeah, mm. helping myself to it. And anyway, but that was, mm. I think soon after, Maya kind of wised up and started introducing some serious security measures. Mm. But uh, um, so, so through that time, you know, the, the different part-time jobs that you have, does anything stick out for you from that from that from that time in terms of the jobs you did and well, I didn't I mean I did pretty pretty basic I did a lot of cleaning and mm-hmm. working in restaurants and things like that mm-hmm. it was a pretty tough gig I mean it wasn't there weren't easy jobs mm-hmm. especially getting up at five o'clock well, actually I was getting up at four thirty to go to do a cleaning job that started at five thirty and yeah and then wow, having to yeah. go to university after that so mm. so even though I was interested in of sustainability, sustainability you know, it's mm. green issues. Mm-hmm. I suppose I didn't have the energy or time to actually get in, involved in it. But mm. I remember I did get involved with Amnesty. I think uh, mm-hmm. even though I was interested in kind of green issues, I was more passionate about social justice issues. And I had a, you know, a few mates who were from Zimbabwe and kind of learnt about uh, the mistreatment of blacks in Rhodesia. This is before Zimbabwe became Zimbabwe. It was still Rhodesia. And mm. uh, yeah, I was kind of involved in some anti-apartheid kind of campaign mm-hmm. when I was at La Trobe University mm-hmm. and then also got involved with Amnesty International. But I was, man, once again, I wasn't very academically kind of focused and mm-hmm. I dropped out, went and worked at the immigration department as a clerk mm-hmm. and to, you know, for a couple of years 
mm. saved up a bit of money and uh, I decided I really didn't want to be a public servant so mm. I thought what else could I do and I don't know I was interested I knew I had some interest in media mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't get into the um, the filmmaking course at Swinburne mm-hmm. so the next best thing that I could get into was um, a media course at Melbourne State College which is now part of Melbourne University mm-hmm. But I'm one of those, I was one of those guys who had fantasies of kind of careers in the film industry, but mm-hmm. never, mm-hmm. never had the creativity nor the discipline to actually do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up just doing a, a teaching degree with majoring in media studies and politics. So mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah, just looking, I was more I was studying mm-hmm. this. I thought I couldn't work out what to do, so I'll just do the stuff I was interested in. And yep. you know, I ended up becoming a high school teacher, mm. uh, not because of a, a real passion for teaching, but... That's the way, okay. That's out of compromise. Yeah, things I could actually do. And uh, but during this time, was it was any entrepreneurial yearnings? Or no, not at all. Yeah, um, mm. and, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting. I wish I, I had you know, learned mm. a bit more about running a business much earlier and mm-hmm. got involved in it. But uh, no, I was just kind of enjoying mm. being at universities. And I, I suppose at the time as well, like entrepreneurship wasn't as cool as it is now. Like it was. No, it was actually the opposite. It was actually yeah. the opposite. It was actually a negative thing. Business was kind of seen as being a negative. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, I started off as a high school teacher. I mean, I'm mm. trying to think how many years I was actually a, a teacher for. Probably about four years, four or five years I was a mm. high school teacher. Yep. And by this time, um, yeah, so four or five years, no, probably six years, um, I had a young family and um, mm-hmm. started think, having to think about the, the kids and so um, I ended up working on remote. In- so yeah, I found a job in a remote Indigenous community as an adult educator. Oh wow! Whereabouts in place? Place called Yundamu, which is northwest of Alice Springs. Oh wow! So on the Tanamine track, it was pretty. Yep. And I had family. Um, a cousin of mine and her husband had moved there earlier, mm. and we had visited them. And uh, I mean, you know, you, when you first turn up in the community, it was, it was a bit of a shock. It was, mm. it was like. And to put it bluntly, it was actually like stepping into the third world. Mm. Mm. Um, but then got to know people in the community and see how things happen. There's a bit of a vibe and it seemed like pretty interesting kind of work. Mm. So when the a job opportunity came up, you know, I you know, applied for it and mm. as an adult educator. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was employed by the Northern Territory Open College of TAFE to run uh, literacy numeracy programs. Mm-hmm. But um, when I got up there, I was told not to rush into running the programs, just to get to let the community get to know me and mm-hmm. get to know the community. Mm-hmm. And the feedback I was getting from the community members was they couldn't see the point of running literacy and numeracy programs in the community because there was no jobs. Mm. And uh, yeah, I had a word with my boss at the time, a guy called Peter Toyne, who happened to be married to my cousin, mm-hmm. and he'd actually done my job before I, I'd actually got there. Mm. And I said, "Look, there's the feedback I'm getting." And so and he said, "Well." what jobs could we actually start in the community? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no experience in business. Mm-hmm. And neither did yeah, I'm pretty sure neither did he. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we started looking at simple things like setting up a community laundromat. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a, it was a town of about 700 people. and 700? Yeah, and okay. the only mm-hmm. people who had washing machines were the non-Aboriginal people, mm-hmm. including myself and my family and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is around the 80s? Or? Late 80s, Late 1989, 80s. we moved yep. up there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, people were having to do much of the washing by hand mm-hmm. next to a tap. Yep. So I remember cornering a politician who had flown in there on, you know, on one mm-hmm. of these tours that politicians often did. And, <laughs> and I said, you know, what about giving us some money to mm-hmm. set up a community laundry? Because he was talking about health issues. Mm-hmm. Actually, he was the health minister. Mm-hmm. A guy called Con Shaka was his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, ask me how much money we need. And for some reason, I I'd already done my research and mm-hmm. worked about $20,000. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to get to started off. Launch yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically I found a group of women to oversee the laundromat and, mm-hmm. and then taught them some basic numeracy skills and basic mm-hmm. bookkeeping. I mean, mm-hmm. not not as if I knew anything about bookkeeping. I just read about it the day before I started <laughs> teaching it. And... Um, and, and, this was and we started, you know, we st- mm. and that was the first of many uh, businesses that mm. uh, we set up on this re- remote community. And they're all businesses owned by the community yeah. itself for the benefit of the community. Yeah. So, but this we was had your, your first foray into business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
the education department had no idea what I was doing out there. Mm. It was basically an agreement between my immediate supervisor, Peter Toyn, mm. who's one of the most incredible human beings I've had the privilege of getting to know, mm-hmm. and um, the local council. I mean, the, as far mm. as the education department were concerned, I was running religious and numeracy programs. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we set up everything from a community laundromat to a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, which would shock some of my vegan customers but mm-hmm. you know we were basically doing what the community needed i mean they had their mm-hmm. own cattle mm-hmm. and they had you know hundreds of heads of cattle and mm-hmm. they were sending the cattle down to adelaide to be slaughtered mm-hmm. and then they'd be buying the meat back oh, i geez. thought okay. why not just do everything locally yeah um, yeah we set up a screen printing business i mean at the time you couldn't go into alice springs to buy a t-shirt as a souvenir mm-hmm. with an aboriginal design on it mm-hmm. uh, which was actually designed by an Aboriginal person and mm. printed by an Aboriginal person. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, well, why can't we do a screen printing, set up a, a business on mm-hmm. this community where people could actually, local people could actually print their own designs onto their T-shirts, mm-hmm. onto T-shirts that we got for them, mm-hmm. and then sell them into you know, tourist outlets in Adelaide, oh, sorry, mm-hmm. in uh, Alice Springs. Mm-hmm. I remember we did get some retailers in Adelaide as well. No, Adelaide, uh, South Sydney. and then, uh, But our single biggest customer was Oxfam. Mm. Who were buying thousands of T-shirts mm-hmm. from us? So wow, yeah, and yeah. and they kept on. I mean, and but the biggest social, the biggest business we ever set up was called the Tanami Digital Network, mm-hmm. where we we were delivering digital services to remote communities. Mm-hmm. At the time, um, so this was, it was again, actually phone calls were pretty. I mean, yeah. I mean there was some basic phone systems there, but mm. we asked Telstra what their plans were for remote communities were as far as delivering other digital services. Mm. And at the time, they told us there was no interest. It's, there's no money in it. Mm. So we kind of, well, it was primarily Peter, and with me supporting him, um, approached um, numerous organisations to see what services they would need. Mm. And This is uh, again like late 80s, early 90s? This is early 90s now. Yeah. And um, yeah, the most exciting one was actually delivering, uh, being able to connect in prisoners in, in in jails in Alice Springs and Darwin mm. to their families on remote communities through video conferencing. Really? Yeah. Wow. In in the This is in response to the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report. One of the mm-hmm. reports basically said that, you know, one of the reasons why unfortunately indigenous prisoners were committing suicide was because their lack of communication mm-hmm. with their families. Mm. So we thought, why, why can't we connect them with their families remotely? Yeah. So how did that work in the early 90s? Video conference? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were called codec machines. They were like a, we, each town, we, we set up f- four towns. We got, we, mm. There were four towns and each one had this massive um, satellite dish mm-hmm. and there wow. was a compression I'm looking at your fridge. Mm. Just, it was about the same size as your fridge. Yep. It's called a codec machine, and we compress mm. the video signal and then transmit yep. it to Alice Springs, Darwin, and all these communities. Via satellite? Via satellite, which Jeez. was owned by the community. So yeah. I remember we raised about $2 million. We actually got a million dollars from some of the Aboriginal organisations up there, mm-hmm. and then we borrowed another million dollars on behalf of the community. So it's $2 million. Borrowed from whom? The National Australia Bank. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, um, and yeah. we yeah, it was a mm. it was a it was a great idea basically, mm. and we and we were, man, it was a crazy amount of money that was being spent, supposedly delivering services to Aboriginal communities, mm. and it was all going to, into administration. I mean, mm. so if a if a bureaucrat had to do something on a remote Aboriginal community, you know, they'd be paid travelling allowances and they'd mm. be away from their work. And we said, why don't you just stay in Alice Springs or mm. Canberra, and we'll connect you to the community. And we'll just we'll charge your mm. department for mm. yours for you at that time, mm. and uh, yeah, we did that with lots of government departments, mm. and uh, it was a pretty exciting job. I mean, I was seconded by the education department to work with the, the Tanami Digital Network, and mm. and uh, yeah, that and some of those. So yeah, everything from a, a community laundromat to a digital network. So mm. so it was a great training. Yeah, from what I do now, but and, but this is before. I mean, on reflection, mm. uh, now you call those businesses social enterprises. Yes, <laughs> I'd never heard that expression until just a few years. Yeah, ago. that's a very recent, yeah. ex- very recent. But we we were working yeah. in social enterprise before I even knew we were working in social mm. enterprise. Yeah. But, but but just quickly with the with the video conferencing, did, did that? How did you get a return on that? What is 
Yeah, well, we were charging other okay. organisations to use time on the network. So we were charging, yeah. I think it was around $300 an hour, something like that, which at the time was quite a bit. Mm. Um, but it was saving government departments quite a bit because they weren't having to pay travel allowances. Mm. You know, their, their staff would stay in Alice Springs and wouldn't have to disappear for a few days. Mm. And we were even selling art because Yundamu was famous for its artists. And mm. we were connecting art centres, art galleries in Europe mm. to the artists in mm. the community. And, and they were able to sell the paintings and you know, yeah. tell the story about the paintings. Mm. It was pretty exciting. I mean, if you actually look up Tanamai Digital Network, there's some you know, pretty interesting... Uh, analysis of the work that we were doing many mm. years ago. Yeah, that that sounds incredible. But but also, did that then spark something in you in terms of you know? Well, then kind of. I remember also at the same time, I remember reading a book called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not sure he's written a few books since then, but I remember mm. he was talking about you know, you know, business has got a negative kind of image. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the environmental issues that we've had. Mm-hmm. were caused by businesses doing the wrong thing and not taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also it could be business who could do something positive, mm-hmm. and uh, especially if there's a profit, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that you could actually business to do something kind of positive. And I thought, mm. well, I could see it. We're doing it right in this community. I mean, yeah, yeah. And we were creating income for people who didn't have opportunities to create income. I mean, mm-hmm. we were giving them kind of pride in their work because mm-hmm. you know, they were able to tell their stories to art centres around the world and, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, getting media attention. Um, you know, people printing their tr- their tr- designs on T-shirts and selling them to consumers mm-hmm. all around Australia. And, yeah. Mm. It was a real buzz. And, you know, well, I did that for six years. And when I came back to Melbourne, uh, and we had to come back because my kids were kind of getting into, you know, they are going to primary school. And, mm-hmm. um and, and I was under pressure by my f- in-laws to bring the kids back to come back to Melbourne. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought I'd probably be able to work, find work with uh, some of these large NGOs, but mm-hmm. I applied for a few and I was unsuccessful. Um, one of the dark secrets in my life is that I actually worked in real estate for a period of time because oh, I could, yeah, cause after I, w- I yeah. wasn't successful. That's okay, we, we'll, we'll edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, so yeah, selling working, real estate? Or? Yeah, my yeah. father-in-law owned a real estate business and you know, yep. gave me some work until mm-hmm. I decided what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that I really enjoyed it, but I found it interesting as far as learning how to sell, mm-hmm. which is useful for what I do now as well. Mm-hmm. That's and a key skill. A business, so I actually yeah. you know, ended up being a sales manager for him, so mm-hmm. yeah, that was a skill, man. No matter what you think of real estate, man, mm-hmm. it was a learning experience. Oh, I mean, sure, yeah. I've learned a lot doing mm-hmm. lots of different things, I mean. I'm trying to work out what I learned from being a cleaner, but yeah. <laughs> apart from the fact that I just appreciate the yeah. work that cleaners do. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, after doing that for a couple of years, I mean, so I was unsuccessful in getting jobs with Oxfam and mm. World Vision and all those kind of groups. And I thought, Why did you want jobs with them? Well, I oh, liked okay. the work that I've been doing on the communities and mm. I thought I could do something similar there, but mm-hmm. and more often than not, I was actually told I, I lacked the postgraduate qualifications mm-hmm. for the roles that I was actually applying for. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, after you know working in real estate for a couple, I thought, what could I do? Mm. And um, you know, I started hearing about this fair trade movement that was happening mm-hmm. around the world. And then, but it hadn't been introduced into Australia. And then, uh, so place us in time now. So this is around the late nineties, or yeah, yeah. late nineties. Yeah. yeah. Um, who was it? Um, I also started reading Ad Busters. I'm not sure whether you know the left wing publication mm-hmm. Ad Busters. It's a uh, it's a magazine which kind of uses the approach of marketing. You know, they're very mm-hmm. close. They understand the marketing mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. And they were basically taking that kind of ability and applying it to social justice and political mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- they were talking about you know the evils of uh, the big sports brands. I mean, mm-hmm. and talking about how yeah you know, we can talk about how evil or bad these companies are but the mm. reality is people are still going to keep on buying clothing mm. and footwear mm-hmm. so we should actually offer people a genuine ethical alternative I thought fuck that made sense to me yep. mm. and I reached out to them and um, tried to they, th- they talked about a, a product called the Black Spot Sneaker mm-hmm. which was going to be the world's first ethically made sneaker mm-hmm. and so before we just so people understand how do you define ethically made is it 
Yeah, well, it, I was no expert in that kind of area, but mm. um, one of the people I got to know through Ad Buses was a guy mm. called Jeff Ballinger, yep. who basically the godfather of the anti-sweatshop movement. Okay. Mm. Uh, he's the guy who went into the factories in the in Indonesia in the, mm. and Taiwan, I think. Um, definitely Indonesia and uh, exposed Nike yep, uh, yep. He's, uh, that was huge like in the late 90s 1990s yeah. Yeah. this is the guy who actually did the initial work in that kind of space mm. so he ended up becoming a consultant to uh, Ad Busters as mm. an advisor so around that time I reached out to him and you know it was taking a while for the black spot sneaker to come onto the market and, and I asked him what the problem was and he explained to me that the issue was that uh he thought he was more concerned about sweatshops in Asia, mm. and the people behind Black Spot wanted to produce their shoe in Portugal, which mm-hmm. they found a good factory, which was uh, very unionized, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do it there. But he wanted to do something in Asia, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it made more sense to me. Mm. So he 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 and a few other activists set um, set up the No Sweat brand. Mm-hmm. Which was looking, it was basically the same idea, making an ethically made shoe, but making it in Asia instead of in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, through Jeff, I was given the opportunity to have the license for the Australian market, the Australian mm-hmm. New Zealand market. And that was, uh, yeah, I left real estate and mm. did this, you know, moved into being a distributor for the No Sweat brand. And, yeah, it was a, a great learning experience. I mean, mm. you know, I had some experience with fashion because. Mm. You know, I mentioned to you that I'd actually done it on remote indigenous communities setting up and yes, selling t-shirts. Yep, and, yep. and also, uh, I suppose, as a, as a young kid, you saw it happen in your house. You know, you saw... Yeah, well, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. when I was working, when I was young, my mum was working, you know, making garments. And mm. I remember, I've spoken about this before in other, other interviews. Mm. I remember being quite young and uh, going into a retail outlet in the city uh, it's called the House of Maryvale and Mr. John, which during the uh, late sixties, early seventies, if you ask your your parents, no, they're in India. Okay, yeah. mm. but if you ask anyone who's a, a teenager or in their twenties, mm. that was the place to shop when you're kind of growing up. Mm. Um, and seeing some of the stuff that my mum had been sold, paid a few cents to make, and you know, being sold for thirty to fifty dollars, and mm. as an eleven-year-old, which is how old I was when I went in there, kind of mm. it really kind of struck me. I thought I couldn't work out how little my mum was paid and how much this kind of garment mm. was being for. But I didn't understand how the capitalist system worked. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But, um, yeah, so I was yeah aware of the issues quite a bit. And, and when I was in high school, um, yeah, we used to, uh, I think Save the Children and Oxfam started putting out reports mm-hmm. about the exploitation of young and old, mm-hmm. you know, child labour in the industry. And when I was gr- kind of growing up, I was really into the Nike brand because... Mm. I mean, uh, it was the new brand on the market. It was, yeah, it was the coolest bit, brand. The cool, yeah. It was, you know, it was, was going to disrupt the mm. the big brands. You know, Nike, sorry, Adidas and Puma were the big kind of mm-hmm. established brands, and yep. and Nike was going to really fuck them up. And you know, I yeah, I thought that was really kind of cool. Mm. And then uh, I was kind of remember being p- pretty being pretty pissed off when I was at university, coming across an image of a young six over young girl stitching a nike soccer mm. ball mm. <laughs> I thought, yeah yeah <laughs> not as cool as i thought it was and yeah, yeah. yeah so i spent most of my time when i was at university only wearing second-hand clothing mm. because of these reasons because well yeah not, i don't know much to my parents disgust my, mm. my parents who really struggled you know the last thing they wanted to do was see their kids wearing second-hand kind of clothing yeah. and footwear. Mm. <laughs> but you know they didn't understand i mean mm. point trying, but uh yeah, that's yeah. I was pretty upset about that when I was kind of going. Around. So mm. I used to go into shops and ask mm. them, you know, ask retailers if they could, you know, if they sure that there was no child labour in the stuff they were selling. Or, mm. But most, you know, staff in shops had no idea. Mm-hmm. And you speak to the managers, and they had little interest in this kind yep. of stuff. So I thought, yeah. You know, but what do you do about it as a mm. high school student or as a university student? I think mm. can, yeah. So wearing secondhand clothing was my answer for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But even that, after a while, I got sick of wearing second-hand clothing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, and but then, so take us back to maybe your distributor for the was it is the black the no spot no sweat. So I did try to get the black spot the distribution the, for the black spot sneaker. Yep. But it took mm. too long to come onto the market, and mm. by that time, no sweat was introduced in the market, and I had the Australian mm. license for it. 
Mm-hmm. So that was around 2003. Mm-hmm. And it was in the early days of uh, online retail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember we had a website. I can't remember that we had, there was no online ordering system. People would just sent us emails. And, mm. Yeah. But I remember selling about 13,000 pairs of sneakers over. Over email? Two, yeah, two yeah. years. Yeah. Just working for my garage. Wow. Mm. And I figured, I mean, and as much as I love and respect the work that Jeff did, mm. as well as the other guys, they were activists first and foremost. Mm. They weren't marketeers mm. or shoe designers, entrepreneurs. And, yeah. and I thought, you know, all right, am I really going to risk everything I've got financially and risk my family's future mm. on these kind of guys? And, and I mean, I was also fine. I was also getting a bit frustrated that I was paying them a percentage. I mean, they'd buy the product from the factory mm. and charge me an extra percentage. Mm. But I was having to develop my own marketing material, and I thought, mm. maybe this I'll just do it myself. Yep. Mm. And we come up with the Etico brand. So mm. yeah, this is about two thousand five. Mm-hmm. So Etico, and actually, I didn't go straight into making footwear, even though that's what we're mm. best known for. We actually started by introducing fair trade sports balls onto the market. Oh, really? Okay. So the first yeah. fair trade products that we did were mm. sports balls. Mm-hmm. I mean, the use of child labor in the sports industry is pretty well documented as well. Yep, yep. Mm. Um, but, um, anyway, now we actually forgot the question you asked me, but... Uh, no, just on the tra- trajectory you're on, like you started Etico. You know, yeah, so Etico yeah. started off as a sports ball brand mm. and you know, we were selling the Etico sports balls at the same time mm. as we were selling No Sweat and then um, I... Mm. S- so I just switched that off. Yep. Um, I was talking to the people who distributed the No Sweat brand in the UK and uh, they were also feeling frustrated about having to develop their own marketing material. Mm. And, and they told me about how they'd found this factory in uh, in Pakistan that was making fair trade sports balls and mm. did I want to be part of that kind of thing? I thought, yeah, I do, but I'm not going to do it under... Because they wanted to sell their own brand. Mm-hmm. I thought, no, I'll do it under my own brand and I'll pay you guys a license fee mm-hmm. for managing that supply chain for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did that for a couple of years, selling No Sweat and selling Fair Trade Sports Balls. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we thought, why not ask the people who are making our sports balls if they could actually make sneakers as well? Because mm-hmm. I thought, if you're stitching a sock ball, yeah, it's not much, yeah. not too much of a leap. But and this was in Pakistan. The yeah, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. and mm. uh, yeah. So the company we were working with, who were buying the balls from, invested in some secondhand equipment they got mm-hmm. from Indonesia. We organised some training for them in making footwear, mm-hmm. and then we yeah we started buying. We dropped the no sweat brand. I, I dropped the brand and yep. and just expanded the Etico into footwear as well. Mm-hmm. And just gradually increase the range of products. Mm-hmm. You know, from So we started with Etico Sports Balls into the Etico Footwear. Mm-hmm. And then around 2008, Fairtrade Cotton became available. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started expanding into clothing and mm-hmm. yeah, T-shirts and hoodies. And, yeah. Yeah, and, that's, and then eventually, uh, 2010, I was also finding that people were confused whether Etico was a sports brand or a fashion brand because mm-hmm. yeah, we had our street fashion kind of look, but we all say that sports ball. So we thought, mm. bugger it, we'll split the brand and create mm. uh, a separate sports brand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned to you that I work on indigenous communities and mm-hmm. uh, I uh, I was kind of coming up with a name which had an, ab- yeah, an Aboriginal name for mm. a sports brand. And mm. um, as someone of Greek origin, I was always kind of pretty cheesed off that Nike was the, using the Greek word for victory. Mm. <laughs> And it's actually the they were using the feminine version of my name. Mm. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Nikki yeah. is not the feminine version of Nico. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, what's the? Could we? So yeah, they were using the Greek word, the Greek word for victory. And I thought, mm. what's the? What's the local Aboriginal word for victory? And mm. uh, yeah, I was talking to the guys that I was working um, that I knew from you and Demu, and they mm. said, oh, Jinta, Jinta means victory or number one. Mm-hmm. I thought that sounds like a good name for a sports brand. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we came up. So, we at one stage, I was selling Etico street fashion yep. and Jinta sports gear. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think that's when I met you. That's right, yeah. yeah that time. Oh, I just got a, I suppose, a bit of a technical question. Like, when you talk about, say, supply chain and maintaining an ethical supply chain, is it mainly just setting up the factory, making sure that's fair trade, or is there, or is there other points along the line that need to be considered 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I've been, I've always been interested in environmental issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was always aware of the environmental impact of what we do as consumers. Mm. But my prime concern was the way workers were being treated. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, the use of child labour, sweatshop and slave labour in the fashion and sports industries is no great secret. Mm. And that never really sat well with me. So mm. uh, what I mean by ethical is making sure that workers are treated kind of mm-hmm. fairly mm-hmm. and that there is no child labour. I, mean, yep. I know there are reasons why child labour exists, mm. but you know, I've yet to meet a, an adult a parent who wants their kids working. I mean, mm. most. I mean, I've travelled extensively through Pakistan, India, and Sri mm. Lanka. I've never met a parent who doesn't want their kids to have an education and mm-hmm. to have fun in their life. And so, yeah. out of mm. desperation, that these kids are sent off to work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, by man, we were looking for factories who were would abide by the fair trade standards. Mm-hmm. So you know, they would have to. We had to find kind of factories which would allow workers to be to join unions if they want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to be treated with respect and, you know, um, their, that their rights would be respected and, mm-hmm. and you know, work them towards achieving the living wage mm-hmm. because, you know, there's a huge difference between uh, the minimum wage in a lot of these countries and what the living wage is. For and, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm more, man, do you want to go into that discussion about yeah. the difference? But, but yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazed by how many kind of groups who are supposedly interested in social justice by mm. buy merchandise from organizations that pay the minimum wage mm. in Bangladesh mm-hmm. and yeah you know, the uh, that minimum wage is about a quarter of what the living wage is mm. e- even for Bangladeshi yeah standards yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah, and it's pretty well documented and mm. uh, yeah that's got to change yeah yeah so I mean I'm not sure how much longer we got in this discussion but uh, We've got time, yeah. Okay. Okay, we're going... We've heard about the Rana Plaza tragedy. Yes, that was in Bangladesh, yeah? It was in 2013. Yeah, about 1,000 people died or something. Mm. Just under 1,200 were killed and Mm. about uh, 2,500 were injured. Yeah. And out of that tragedy, um, Mm. the Australian Ethical Fashion Report was Mm. introduced. Yep. And... uh, they started looking at uh, the supply chains. Uh, I think they started by looking about it, the supply chains, about 112 different brands in Australia. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, only one brand could prove that they paid workers living wages mm-hmm. as well as paid um, farmers a fair price for their cotton. Mm-hmm. And that was Etico. Mm-hmm. Actually, and Jinta. So my, both my brands got an A-plus for ethical production in 2013. Wow, yeah. mm-hmm. um, in... Uh, by 2021, mm-hmm. three other brands joined us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, mm. five yep. altogether. Mm. Last year, not one single brand got an A+. Plus. One, not one single brand um, could prove they paid workers living wages. Wow. We didn't because we boycotted the report. Because <laughs> we, uh, together with the other brands, mm. we all boycotted the report because we felt that the standards in that report weren't high enough mm-hmm. uh, that big brands were using it for ethical washing. Yep, yep. Mm. So, yeah, there are a small number of brands in Australia doing the right thing, mm-hmm. but they make up less than 1% mm. of all the fashion brands in Australia. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, also, so, so when you were starting... So, yeah, yeah. And that, in, that in 2022, 2023, mm. that big brands who could pay mm. living wages aren't doing it, can mm. really disgust me, and uh, yep. uh, but it's all a, a damnation on us as mm. a society because uh, we allow we we wouldn't let we wouldn't allow that things like that to happen in Australia, mm. but because it happens overseas for some reason, it's okay. Just, it's okay. Yeah. We just forget about it. Yeah. Other, pro- other priorities. Yeah. Yeah, but so like when you started Etico, did it take some time for the market to catch up to what you were doing? Yeah, or? yeah, it yeah. took years, man. Yeah, so we started Etico in 2005. Yep. Mm. I mean, I told you about the no sweat brand where that we saw 13,000 mm. pairs. I mean, mm. 13,000 pairs, but in a population of how many million? I mean, yep. it's not that much. Mm. Um, you know, those kind of people were the early adapters. The reality yeah. is that we kind of, the market has only started catching up to where we are now mm-hmm. and it's still got a long way to go. 
Um, I think on reflection, we were probably eight, ten years too early. Mm-hmm. Yep. And which made it really challenging because you know mm. when I first started, I don't think a lot of people believed what we were saying about mm. what was wrong with supply chains, about how workers were being treated or mistreated, mm. Mm. or how workers were being underpaid, <coughs> mm. or the uh, the negative impact on farmers in developing countries. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it took the Rana Plaza tragedy mm-hmm. to happen before things started changing. And that was not the first industrial accident in the mm. fashion industry. Mm. And it wasn't in the last one. I mean, mm. if you just Google uh, fashion industry disasters, you'll, mm. you'll find them as recently just a few months ago. I mean, yep. it's, mm. it's kind of a regular occurrence. Mm. Uh, just that, and not that kind of scale. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's a damnation on all of us that we allow that to happen. Yeah, And yeah, we've got wardrobes full of shit that we hardly wear. Yep. And it's, you know, we, we have the, the world was full because they're all cheap. Mm. And they're cheap because people are being screwed and the mm. environment's being screwed. Um, but mm. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But, but, but just for your business, um, when did it start to turn for you, do you think, in terms of market acceptance and profit, profitability? And, you know, yeah, 2013, 2014. I mean, I yep. feel pretty guilty that. Mm. Um, it took that tragedy for our business to okay. Start. So after that, yeah. yeah. Mm. This is another sorry, a bit of a tangent, but maybe going back to what you said in your time in the Aboriginal communities, you mentioned you know your cousin's husband Peter Tony. Point, yeah, yeah. You said he was one of the best people you ever met. Like why? why well, it's incredible. You? I mean, yeah. he was a true inspiration. I mean, he still is. I mean, he's, I'm still mm. I still see him regularly. And, okay, <laughs> and uh, incredible intelligence at a completely different level from other human beings mm. uh, but apart from that a genuine concern for his fellow human being and mm. uh, man he's worked his guts out for the communities that he used to work I mean um, yeah, he was working on remote indigenous communities for 30 years mm. and I can see the love the communities had for them for him as well because mm. you know, they'd do anything for him as well mm. so much so that he got elected to parliament in the Northern Territory and become the Attorney General in the Northern Territory oh wow okay worked even harder for those mm. communities. Mm. Um, but he showed me that, you know, you could actually contribute just to your, your local kind of community by mm. being selfless mm. and, um, yeah, working smart. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I just wish I had his intelligence, but mm. uh, he was a master at applying for grants and, um, mm-hmm. and doing submissions. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a lot of support, you know, when I was working on remote communities and uh, mm. yeah, guiding me and giving me feedback, even if it was negative sometimes, but mm-hmm. um, I trust him totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I see the communities still you know, love him and kind mm. of. Okay, I mean, his brother was actually Philip Toyne. I'm not sure whether you ever heard of Philip Toyne, but Philip no. was uh, one of the early activists, uh, indigenous right activists. Um, he was actually the lawyer who worked with the Mutajula community to take back uh, Uluru. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up becoming the, uh, the founder of Landcare Australia and mm-hmm. um, he also was the head of Australian Conservation Foundation. Yep. So yeah, mm-hmm. I got to know him through Peter. and mm-hmm. um, So the two of them had a big influence on me as I was kind of growing up. Mm. And they were consuming, they were a few years old, maybe 10 years older than me. So, mm. and you know, coming from a, a working class migrant family and yeah. <laughs> being exposed to these guy, kind of guys, wow, it's, yeah, it gave me a different perspective. Yeah, mm. life. Um, all right, Nick, just got a few wrapping up questions. That's why we're coming to time. But, but you know, we, we've talked about you know, pretty much your whole journey from you know, growing up in Melbourne and yep. in, the, in the 60s and you know, all your adventures through uni and in remote communities. As I suppose, as you reflect on that, and you know, as you think about what you're doing now with Ethico, what stands out to you in terms of influences? In terms of you know, like this, when you think back on your life, like this really helped me do what I'm doing now. I suppose on outlook in life. I mean, I, I mentioned that uh, the grapes of wrath when I was kind of growing up, and mm. you know, kind of other books that influenced me quite a bit were um, The Catcher in the Rye. I mean, yeah, how did that influence I, you? Because I, I can really relate to Holden Caulfield and the way yeah. he saw adults and other human beings. And mm. I think I still, I mean, yeah, 
I, I read oh, I've read the book a couple of times since then. Yep. Mm. I can see even now my attitude towards life and other people mm. is yeah, it's been influenced. They're by all phonies that. and yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I still, and I still see a lot of you know, a lot of phonies out there. I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've, I find it kind of frustrating that mm. uh, the amount of ethical washing that's going on at the moment, mm-hmm. greenwashing, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it concerns me because mm. uh, it. it it dilutes the work that the people who are doing the real good stuff mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's disrespectful for that kind of work mm-hmm. uh, but what do you do about it yeah mm-hmm. um, but um, now what was the question again <laughs> no just reflecting your life what are the key influences that yeah, yeah. well the thing is with Etico and we've created a brand which has resonated with um, consumers not just in Australia but kind of internationally I mean mm-hmm. I'm staggered to when we get orders from Denmark or South Korea or the United States on a regular basis. Mm. <coughs> and, you know, and, and I've actually found that kind of interesting that we've taken a, this idea mm-hmm. of, of a brand that stands for something mm-hmm. and that it's actually resonated with people mm-hmm. all around the world. And mm-hmm. I found that. And, you know, I look at um, some of the other brands, I mean, I mean, the black spot sneaker, mm. even though it took a long time for us, I mean, it did actually finally get off the ground, and I really mm. respected the work that they kind of actually mm-hmm. did. But um, I'm trying to think of other people at the moment who uh, um, influenced me now, but mm. uh, I don't know there are a lot of people out there that I meet who are really kind of totally selfless mm. and uh, are really passionate about the same kind of issues that mm. I am, and yeah. I don't spend enough. I don't spend enough time mixing with them, mm-hmm. but you know, I respect them from a distance. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I've heard some of them on your podcast as well, so mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But um, it's uh, trying to work out how we. So, for those of us, you know, you know my journey, how long it's taken. Mm. We still haven't got the brand to where we've wanted to mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't mm. worked out the secret to actually scaling the business up, and that's yeah. been interesting. And, and I suppose, like when I first met you in 2014 or wherever it was, I, I was kind of in awe of your persistence. You know, what, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, um, it's a number of factors. Mm. Um, a, I mean, I actually enjoyed. <laughs> B, um, mm. I feel an obligation. Mm-hmm. To the people that we've worked with over a number of years, so mm-hmm. you know, I had to convince a number of, of mm-hmm. factories <laughs> to go down this fair trade path, and they had to change the way they did business mm-hmm. to accommodate. I mean, you know, you had to, you know, convince factory owners to allow unions to operate in their factories or to let auditors in their factories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it yep. took a guts. It took you know, a, a gamble on their behalf to actually to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel an obligation to, to help them achieve something in return. But mm. um, each time I've gone to Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, well, I've got to know a lot of the workers and the farmers in our supply chain. And, mm. you know, and some of them I actually visit repeatedly every time I've gone there. Mm. And I can see the impact it's had on their lives. And they tell me about their dreams and aspirations wow. for themselves and for their kids. Yeah. So you feel like there's an obligation there. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And on top of that... Um, my wife and I were debt-free when I first started. Okay, that helps. <laughs> and, we, and we're no longer debt-free. So yeah. they're all kind of strong motivations. Mm. I mean, yeah, so that yep. obligation to the people who've supported us, mm. the factory owners, the you can see the impact it has on people in our supply chains and our mm. own kind of investment in the kind of idea. Mm. And the reality is that you know, there is a growing consciousness. I mean, <clears throat> I get a real buzz out of meeting people who, you know, we've got a shop in Sydney Road, Brunswick now, mm. And people often come in and tell us how they've been following our journey for many years. Mm. And, you know, they've been buying our products. Even I've actually met people who were buying my stuff from me when I was doing No Sweat. Mm. And they've stuck with us at it. Wow. And uh, I don't know there's too many brands out there who've got that kind of loyalty from people. Mm. I mean, I think Etico is more than just a fashion brand. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a values brand that actually stands for something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are buying into what we've actually... Mm. trying to do just that we need to get a lot more people I mean, yeah um, yeah i'm trying to work out how do we get to the next level where we can take the brand more into the mainstream and how do we mm. get to them and i've been you know you know i've been working with one arm and one leg tied by my back since day one i've never mm-hmm. i've bootstrapped the business since day one mm-hmm. and i 
haven't been able to do what other brands do is to mm. you know, bring on, build a team around me, which yep. I failed to do. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about all the things I didn't, haven't done. And mm. One thing I, did, I should have done earlier was build a team of, of other people around me who can actually help us kind of grow and have mm. skill sets that I didn't have. Yep. Secondly, I should have actually raised equity mm-hmm. much earlier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's part of a, the next step in my journey is to actually mm. raise equity because, you know, even though we are profitable and, you know, we are, mm. you know, we are sustainable mm. as a business, we need to kind of scale up to kind of the, create the kind of impact that yep. we need to be actually achieving. Mm. Um, how many employees do you... At the moment, three. Three, okay. Yep. And <laughs> that's, it's three when you first met me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's still three. I mean, we work, I suppose we work mm. a bit smart. I mean, mm. when you first met me, we used to do our own warehousing. Yes. We don't do... We're, I've, you know, I've, yeah. We do... We use 3PL mm. for that, third-party yep. logistics. Mm-hmm. So, and we do have people freelancers working for us as well. I, mean, mm. there, I learned a long time ago that you can't expect people to buy products simply because you're being eco-friendly or ethical. Mm. I'm not sure you know our pricing, but it's basically the same price as equivalent quality brands. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I can do that is by keeping my overhead. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm one of the original leaders in the lean business models because <laughs> yeah. I've, never, I've never known mm. any other way of doing it. But yep. yeah, you mm. can't get much leaner than what we've done. Mm. Uh, but it'd be nice to have a lot more resources. Mm. So, yeah, the next step in our journey is actually to uh, find investors who can see the potential for our brand, not just mm. but in, not just in Australia but internationally. Yep. And uh, yeah, over the next few months, we hope to launch a crowdfunding for equity campaign. Mm-hmm. Or we're also open to t- talking to you know, private individuals who mm. are interested in impact investment as well. Mm. But it's you know, something I should have done years ago. Yeah, hopefully people who are listening to this could can reach out to you. And um, yeah, well, yeah. you're not we're not too hard hard to find. So mm. yeah, Etico, you know, the website etiko.com. Yep. I'll put yeah. the links in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. As well. um, yep. But yeah, you know, if anyone, and I'm actually interested in also talking to people who've been able to take a small idea and scale it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm. um, in the within this kind of fashion space, I haven't come across too many. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of. Um, ethical fashion brands come and go over the years. Mm. And you know, I think one reason why we've managed to survive is because of that, been always been a lean business model. Yep. Um, but we've also built our own kind of community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got about 27,000 people who get our news, uh, who receive our newsletter. There's mm. about 11,000 of them open, open it on mm-hmm. a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But we're, you know, we're, we're, we can sustain ourselves within that community just we, mm. we want to scale it up a lot more yep so you know, if we can you know encourage people to sign up for our newsletter mm. or visit us at our shop at 536 Sydney Road Brunswick mm. and uh, yeah I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to ask me today is that, is no that... uh, w- one last question yep uh, this is the the name of this podcast is the On Meaningful Work podcast yeah uh, so what does the term meaningful On Meaningful Work mean to you yeah well uh so I was thinking, you warned me about this question. I so did, yeah. <laughs> um, hmm. I was thinking, when I was working as a cleaner, did I actually find meaning in that? And the reality hmm. is no. Hmm. Uh, when I worked in real estate, did I find meaning in that? And the answer is no. But hmm. uh, did I find meaning in the business? When I was working on remote indigenous communities, and the answer was definitely yes, because hmm. I could see the impact I was having on other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And the same applies to the work that I do with Edigo. Um, mm. Yeah, for meaning for me, it's actually doing something which is doing more than just bringing income in, but actually contributing to you know, mm. making someone else's life a bit easier, yep. or you know, doing something to positive for the environment. And mm. yeah, so kind of I suppose running a business which helps you apply your values mm. or your goals or mm-hmm. your mission and. I'm not sure. I mean, I hate these kind of questions because it means I've got to think. Uh, <laughs> no, but just, I think that's a perfect inter- answer. I'm just, yeah. I'm just more interested in just doing s- stuff that I actually yeah. believe in. Yeah. Mm. But, right. yeah, I mean, I'm sure there, there are people in the audience who are doing stuff that they could get meaning. Mm. Yeah. They would love to meet someone who uh, is working as a cleaner and mm. finds meaning in, the, in that role. But uh, yeah. yeah, but but I think it, it's kind of what you find meaningful is just seeing the benefits it has on other people rather than just selfishly for I yourself. I also find yeah. a buzz to 
see an idea that a seed that I planted many years ago kind of mm. grow into something which is resonating to something which a lot of people see value in. Mm. I mean, uh, I can't believe how many people I've because I've been operating for quite a few years now. Mm. How many people have actually come up to me and said, oh, "I heard you talk at my high school or my university mm. years mm-hmm. ago," and I've kind of become more conscious consumer mm. since then. Yeah, I mean, even last week I was at a presentation for the sports industry and this young person came up to me and she remembered me giving mm. a presentation at Monash University and mm. now she's working in the sustainability area as well. Yeah, there's yeah, been quite wow. a few of them. I'm not saying that mm. I'm responsible for it, but it had some kind of influence. And mm. yeah, the, we actually featured in quite a few high school and university textbooks as mm. case studies on social entrepreneur or sustainability design design sustainability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I couldn't imagine when I first started Edico that it would mm. kind of get to that kind of level. Yeah, but it still feels like it's only just starting. Mm. We're just in you know, the market's finally catching up to us. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's happening is because there is a growing market for this kind of product, mm-hmm. there are a lot of dodgy kind of mm. claims being made by yep. lots of other brands. I mean, mm. yeah, some major brands claim that they're kind of ethical as well, but when you scratch the load below the surface, you realise there's not much there. Mm. And that, you know, but the industry is ignoring the brands who are doing the right mm. thing. I mean, there's Outland Denim up in Queensland, there's mm. Mighty Good Basics in uh, Sydney, and mm. there's Etico. And mm. yeah, when I hear people talking about sustainable ethical fashion, no one seems to mention those brands. Mm. Yeah, But they're the ones well, who are actually doing it. The real yeah. Thing. Yeah. Um, but Nick, I, I think, you know, like I said at the start of the podcast, I've known you for about, uh, 10 years now, off and on, Possibly. we haven't yeah. really, but I really do ad- admire your persistence and uh, because I think at the time when we first met, you were going through, I think a few struggles with the business, but just to see you come through that and now. Yeah. Cause at the time, you know, the market wasn't ready for us. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, I really this is an incredible brand that you built, and I wish you all the success with it. Yeah. I know, I've got a respect for the work that you've done as well over many years, and mm. yeah, with your conferences, your 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 events, and your podcast as well. So mm. keep it up, and we'll do. Yeah. Interesting to see where we are in the ten years. In time. the ne- next ten years, yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you, thank you, Nick. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. That's R-A-H-U-L at disruptivebusinessnetwork, all one word, dot com. Finally, a big shout out to our producer, Dan Scahill, for his work on the keys and to Vashti Civil for writing the original music for our theme. Until next time, this is your host, Rahul Sohn, signing off.